Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is February the 13th. This episode will be out this week. We want to do a full episode today about what has happened in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, for those who are not aware of the news, there was a massive trail der- derailment, um, and it was accompanied by the release of vinyl chloride gas. Um, this mm-hmm. created huge air pollution clouds all around the town. Nobody really knows what the environmental effects are. But if you look on social media, or if you look not so much on the news, honestly, because there is a, like, there's a little bit of a pause in terms of the news coverage, I think. But if you look on social media and you look around and you look, you know, people showing like what rain looks like there right now, animals dying, it is like terrifying. Now, We don't know what the end result is, right, at this juncture. But I don't think it takes too much imagination or too much extrapolation to reasonably and responsibly say that, like, the ceiling for what the badness of this event could be is, like, pretty uncapped, right? Mm -hmm. There are rivers there. You have no idea if this is going to go downstream and into other people's water sources. You have no idea how contained it is. Now, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio and... You know, the federal government have both said, hey, we checked the air. It seems fine. All of you can go back home, right? But <laughs> they only is- <laughs> evacuated for a few days. Yeah, exactly. It was so wild. And if you see this, that's Tammy, by the way. Um, <laughs> if you if you see this, Tammy, did you see the pictures of like this, ex- of like, I think yes. they basically lit the gas on fire, right? It's to insane. try and contain yeah. it. Right. Um, it's this huge explosion, right? And it's like the type of explosion where like in your brain, you're like, Nothing that nothing that creates that type of explosion is like okay for everybody. Exactly. And these chemical exposures often take years or decades right, to right. right to come to surface and people will have birth defects and all sorts of things. So that's it's the scariest just ridiculous. Part of it. yeah. Right. Or like tumors or there's some sort of like increase Absolutely. in anything. Nobody knows, right? Mm-hmm. And the frustrating part of it, I think, so far in terms of many, many frustrating things, which we will get into in this episode. Is that from the federal government, you know, Pete Buttigieg on down, right? The powers that be seem to be saying, hey, yeah, that was terrible. A one-off, random thing. We're really sorry that this happened. It's a tragedy. But there's nothing to see here in terms of anything larger or systemic. Totally. Sometimes trains go off the tracks. Shit happens, right? (laughs) Sometimes gigantic clouds of vinyl chloride are lit on fire, oh right? And cause like gigantic toxic rain clouds that come down and kill animals, right? By the way, maybe those animals just died. <laughs> no one can prove anything. Yeah, animals die, you know? <laughs> um, I saw this guy. I saw this guy. Um, he was like, I don't know what his job was, but he was on Twitter and he was taking photos of what the rain looked like on his car. Wow. It's fucking crazy, you know? What color was it? Like, it was just little bits of... It looked like somebody had dropped bits of acid, acid onto, the, right? onto his yeah. car, you know? And to be like, oh, well, you know, that's just a little bit of acid that had... Like, you have no nobody involved in this, and this is what's been the most frustrating about it. Nobody involved has any clue about the scope of the problems here, you know? And I right. think it would be okay for them to say, we don't know. You yeah, know, but that's not what they're saying, right? Right. They're saying just go back home, right? Like it's going to be fine, right? And like, uh, it probably didn't go down into the water sources. You know, it probably didn't go in. Like, you know, it, it it's definitely contained within this. How do they know? Right. It just seems so classic as an environmental justice issue because it always seems to happen in areas where there's already all these other pollutants and points of like emissions and stuff, and so the government can sort of get away with that in a sense, because they'll just say, well, how can you isolate it to being connected to this thing when there are all these other things in the community? Right. But it just, yeah, it's, it's this kind of compounded problem of a very depressed and um, yeah, environmentally already polluted place. Right. Like if it had happened, you know, I mean, this place is pretty close to Pittsburgh, right? It's yeah. In Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Even if it had happened anywhere to a closer to a, larger population center like who knows right Mm -hmm. and it seems like what happened wasn't like oh well they didn't 
it seemed like it was train related. And so this probably could have happened anywhere right? Um, in terms of the sort of bearing breaking through. off mm-hmm. or whatever they think happened. Yeah. Um, and in some ways they lucked out, right? Because it happened in this, in this small sort of economically depressed town. But um, Tammy, why don't you tell us about the guests that we have today? Sure. So we brought on uh, Nick Wurst, who is a railroad conductor on one of the major carriers in the United States, and he works out of uh, a rail yard in Massachusetts. Um, He came on right off an overnight shift on a train, so we're really grateful that he spent some time with us. But he's been organizing with a group called Railroad Workers United, which is a cross-union sort of solidarity union. And they have been pushing for much more regulation on the trains and really trying to kind of sound an alarm on some of the issues that have potentially caused this derailment, but many other derailments too that we just haven't seen in the news. Right. And um, there's a couple of things that I think that we should talk about before we bring Nick on, right? Um, One of the things that he talked about was precision scheduled Mm -hmm. railroading, which uh, is something I didn't really know that much about until this week, but uh, it's something that has been developed in the last 30 years or something like that. And now is on every single class one railroad in, in America and it's sort of, I don't know, it seems to have like shifted the idea from people run a train when it can run, when it's safe to run, and they will get there on time because there's enough people, et cetera, to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this one is basically trying to run everything at maximum capacity at all times, right? And that what is the priority is making sure that the timing is correct, that the precision of that is correct. And that to make that happen, what they haven't done is increase the infrastructure and the staffing to make sure that that can happen safely. But instead, it's just to cut corners at every single opportunity. And the second thing I think that people should think about is that, and I'm sure they have if they're listening to this show, which is like what happened last year in terms of um, railroad strikes and Biden administration, right? So, Tammy, right, what, what do you yeah. what do you see the connection with that? Just so that people have a little bit of foregrounding before they get, yeah. There. And I, I guess we've talked about the strike a teeny bit on the show before when it was sort of maybe about to happen. But um, railroad workers don't have the legal right to strike, really, and usually it is um, a strike if it seems to be near is usually cut off through like federal regulation. Right. Then there's the assembly of a board that sort of negotiates. Um, um, and enforces arbitration, essentially forces a contract onto the unions. And um, that's kind of what happened last year. The uh, railroad unions were trying to say, hey, wait a minute, um, not only do we not have any paid sick time off or time with our families, but our staffing levels are so, so lean. Like sometimes there's one guy on a train that something terrible is going to happen. And also there's issues with our brakes, with the actual physical equipment itself with the rails themselves. And if we don't get the stuff back in working order, again, disaster. Um, so it's not just about, you know, their working, their own working conditions, but really about the safety of the freight rail system, period. Um, it was really highlighted because obviously we've been talking so much about supply chain issues during the pandemic. And, you know, the rails still do carry a significant amount of the freight in the United States. Right. Um, yeah. So our guest was kind of part of, I would say like kind of the left wing of the railroad workers movement that's been trying to say like, all right, even our unions haven't really been doing enough against the corporations that run the rail business. And we need to um, stop the rail companies from continuing to do this precision scheduled railroading. Yeah. And um, not just that, but that is sort of like the context of it or everything is within PSR or um, yeah, the driver of so many things. Yeah. Right. But one of the things that we learned through this conversation is that everything is cut down mm-hmm. and that when everything is cut down, then everything else has to suffer because that thing is cut down. Totally. Right? So you have, if you have one person who is inspecting 15, like, I don't know, let's just arbitrarily say like 10 yeah. trains and suddenly they have to do 20 in the same period of time. Right. Yeah. On a ledger sheet, right that is right look being looked at at something like that right they say oh well whatever it seems like we can just double the capacity here and who cares because like the derailments don't really matter they just happen you know yeah uh we can't definitively prove that having one person do 10 (laughs) instead of 20 will lead to more or less derailments and plus we have all this fancy technology that does a lot of their job for them right yeah 
but that type of mentality has been placed everywhere within this industry right totally. and that you know i think that when that happens as you see there can be little things that shock the system and then everything falls apart right mm-hmm. and that the i think dominance. that is like the sort of looking forward thing that i took away from the conversation totally. that we'll be having which is like when does this all fall apart right mm-hmm. um because it just feels like there's an immense amount of pressure and i think as the weeks go on this story is going to get bigger as some of the more environment as some of the environmental effects shake out maybe it won't maybe it'll be suppressed i don't know you know but um you know like it just seems like to me at least this is a massive story yeah yeah i think that's right and i think the health effects once we have a clearer notion of all of that um yeah i think that the just like another note on the PSR thing, I think like it reminds me so much of just what happens in many other industries around like just in time scheduling or just having like no slack in any system and treating workers like they are literal nuts and bolts that you can swap in and out regardless of skill or experience. Um, And so it leads to all of these crunches and um, like hazardous situations, even in industries that seem much less like lower stakes than the rails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every industry basically, except like, I don't know. No, every industry. I can't think of a single industry that's not like this, you know? Um, And uh, it is just one thing where I think that people don't know a lot about the rails, right? I think you and I both learned a lot. And so uh, I think the more educated people are about it, the more this will become apparent to them. So without further introduction, here's our conversation with Nicholas Worst. Nick Worst, our guest today, is a freight rail conductor at the company CSX and a member of the Smart TD Union. He's also a member organizer with Railroad Workers United, which is a cross-union solidarity group, and he organizes with the Independent Socialist Group. I'm really happy to see Nick again. Uh, We met last fall when I was reporting a story in central Massachusetts when it seemed like the rail unions could go on strike. The way people were talking about that strike at the time was in terms of railroad workers' lack of time off. And while that was definitely an issue, Nick and other workers told me that they were more concerned about understaffing and unsafe loads. Nick is here to talk to Jay and me about the freight train disaster that happened on the night of February 3rd in East Palestine a depressed post-industrial area of eastern Ohio, not far from Youngstown and Pittsburgh. That area has seen very little economic development in recent years and has a lot of incinerators and other facilities um, that are very harmful to public health. So briefly, what happened on February 3rd is a long, heavy train was that was carrying a bunch of harmful ke- chemicals had some joints severed and derailed in Ohio. Nick is going to explain how exactly that happened, and we're going to talk about the response from politicians and other officials, uh, like Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, the AG over there, and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has not promised to institute any new regulations. Um, Nick, we're really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So before we get into all of this stuff, maybe tell us a little bit about where you're from and how long you've been doing railroad work. Sure. Um, I'm from uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, and I have been working in the railroad industry for about four years now in two different capacities. Uh, but currently I work as a um, as a freight train conductor. Great. And what was your initial reaction to the news out of East Palestine? I think the first things I, I, I was seeing about it was photographs that were being shared in um, social media groups and things like that of um, railroad workers. And it was, there's always a certain amount of um, dark and and sort of gallows humor um, among Mm. railroad workers. There's, there's running jokes about, oh, if the, the best way to get something fixed is to destroy it, and then the companies will finally you know, um, chip in to fix it. But it was, it was very clear, even though there was not much detail, um, Mm -hmm. that it was something very, very different because it's, it's 
you know, uh, photos get shared of derailments all the time. And it's sometimes it's, you know, laughs at the company's expense or, or jokes about, you know, whether the crew was incompetent and all of that. All of that is, comes from a place of most of us have been there, um, mm -hmm. have been involved in things like that. And, and we know the kind of pressure that everybody's under. But this looked very, very different. And I think for me and a lot of other people, it was we were instantly sort of reminded of the disaster that happened in um, Quebec. Uh, several years ago where a, a basically a town ended up being destroyed um, by a, uh, a flammable train. Um, so, you know, we, I didn't know whether people had been hurt or killed or anything like that, but it was, I think someone had coined 2022 as sort of the, the year of the derailment. Um, there were tons and tons of accidents uh, on all of the um, different rail carriers, networks, and everything, and already we're just into 2023, and there's been a bunch of high-profile, really mm -hmm. big accidents. So this was it was shocking in terms of um, it's clearly on a different scale, but at the same time, I think all of us knew uh, to some capacity that this was coming um, yeah. at some point. One thing, like when I think about this, you know, I just because I followed what happened with the Biden administration and the labor issues and, um, you know, the question was always there. The central question was like sick days and time off. Right. Or that's how it was expressed to those of us who weren't in the industry. I think we're just following it, you know, through people's reporting or reading stuff like that. Um, the, but the larger question was always like, okay, is the central problem the greed of these companies? And in some instances, the idea that they don't really know the industries that, that well, right? Like they're just trying to maximize profits. They don't understand the risks here. I mean, but did this feel, it just felt like at some level, now that I've read about it, that this almost felt inevitable, right? That, and like you said, it has happened quite a bit, right? And now we have this high profile thing where who knows what is going to happen to this town of East Palestine, right? Um, I don't know. Did you, is, is that how it's experienced from your end? Like, you know, like this is definitely going to happen. And like, if they're not going to help us, then, you know, like this is just going to, this is just going to be in what happens. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a sense of a certain sense of inevitability around this. Um, so like I like I said, there's there's kind of a dark humor um, sort of in railroad circles about, you know, tearing stuff up. You know, you you kind of you're not a real railroader unless you've 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 had an accident. You know, you, you've torn something up. It, it's just between all of the different things that can go wrong, including the massive number of things that could go wrong, completely regardless of whether you do your job entirely right, you know, whether it's. Um, the fact that they've slashed uh, maintenance of the physical rails uh, to, to the mm -hmm. bone. And so you're running over poorly maintained stuff. So who knows, the rail might just give up one day, especially if it, you know, was negative 30 yesterday and then it went up to 50 degrees the day after and then back down <laughs> yeah. to freezing, you know. So there's this sense of, you are going to have accidents. Things are going to happen, even if you do everything right. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, that at this point, no matter how hard you try, you are probably going to screw up. It's, it's, it's impossible to guarantee that you're always going to be right, that you're always going to be following all the rules. And so, yeah, there is this sense of, it's bound to happen and you you hope that it's something minor. Yeah. And Jay and I were reading through some of the Railroad Workers United press releases that you guys put out in the wake of this accident. Um, and some of it was talking about precision scheduled railroading, which we can get into. But just like on the mechanics of this particular train, can you explain as a conductor, like how this happened? How could a train like this derail and, and the tanks, so many tanks go up in flames? Well, part of the part of the problem um, when it comes to derailments, 
especially on trains this big and this heavy is it takes a lot of, uh, you know, forensics almost and investigating to, to figure out what the actual cause was. Uh, sometimes it's not very obvious. And um, a lot of times what might at first appear to be some sort of, um, uh, hu they call them human factor uh, derailments, you know, some mm -hmm. sort of the crew had made some sort of mistake or someone had missed something. Um, it can also be um, equipment failing. It can be improperly maintained track. It can be uh, tons and tons of uh, different things that can cause this derailment. So what it looks like at this point is that there was a bad bearing. There was a, um, I think it was someone's like ring camera um, actually caught video mm -hmm. of what looked like, you know, basically a wheel on fire, um, going past. So these, um, the trucks and the bearings that these cars sit on and, um, and roll on, uh, can fail pretty frequently. Sometimes it's bad brakes heat up the entire thing. Sometimes it's the bearing itself failed, but it looks like, when that happened, uh, that car derailed. When that car derailed, um, obviously the, the shock of suddenly uh, this car no longer rolling uh, mm -hmm. caused the, the train to break apart um, right at that, at that car. Gotcha. So that's, that's what it, it looks like has happened. And part of the thing that's made this worse um, is that the train was built with the engines and some heavy loads up towards the head end of the train and then a whole bunch of empty and lighter cars and then heavier cars again at the rear um so that's increased mo you know that all that those cars on the rear that are the last ones to have their brakes applied are the heaviest ones they're the ones that have all this momentum and so that's that's even more force um, hitting the cars that are ahead and breaking. So that, that made the jackknifing, you know, probably significantly worse than it would have been if those cars had all been, um, lighter or, or empty. Gotcha. And Nick, could you talk about like how, like Jay was talking about like all these corporate profits in these companies, yeah. which I know is, is top of mind for you. Um, but like through this practice of precision scheduled railroading, which seems to be kind of like just in time sort of scheduling, and very lean staffing, you know, system for, for these train companies. Is that why you have a situation like this where there's a super long um, train and all the heavy stuff is loaded at the back? Like how does stuff like that happen? Cause it, it seems like, is mm -hmm. that because people are so rushed on their shifts? Cause there's not that many people to do it. Like how does the profit part intersect with like the, the practice part on the rails? Right. So there's there's a few different ways that this this um, connects here. So if we start with the the mechanical defect on the on the car, um, again, assuming that that's that's determined what it is, mm -hmm. every car is supposed to be inspected thoroughly. If it's being picked up, you know, uh, partway through your trip um, from from a customer or something like that on a local, you know, the conductor is supposed to inspect it. But obviously, um, we don't have the same abilities to to repair things um, that uh, dedi that dedicated car inspectors do right out out in the field. Um, and if it's being picked up from from a terminal from a yard um, where there are car inspectors, it um, is supposed to be inspected. Um, when it comes in, when it arrives, and uh, to make sure that it's good to go. The problem is that it's not just the train crews that have faced massive staffing cuts over the years. It's also um, car inspectors. Mm. And it's not just that they try to operate with the minimum number of car inspectors. It's also that they put they put the, the speed up on the um, on the car inspectors that Car inspectors are, um, from my understanding, and again, it's not my my craft, but they're allowed a certain amount of time to look at every car, and they they have a, a minimum number of repairs that they're supposed to do per shift. 
Um, and this is a way that like the company um, sets these, you know, uh, minimums to, to try and, you know, find people who are quote unquote underperforming, but also to, you know, to, to hurry things up, right? Um, if a 50 car train comes in and, you know, the, the policy is you have 10 minutes per car, uh, that's 500 minutes. That's a big time sink, right? Um, you're going to find a lot more defects and repair a lot more defects than if, say, you have five minutes per mm-hmm. car. Um, yeah. So, you know, they may end up trying to pin this on the car inspectors at wherever place this car came from and say, well, this car wasn't properly inspected, but that's completely ignoring the context of they have less car inspectors and those fewer car inspectors are being asked to look at more cars with less time. Um, And because of these quotas and things like that, you know, um, especially when you're in out, you know, because they, they have different rules about maximum numbers of hours and things like that. If they're working a double, they're an hour 15 of yeah. their job and they've, they've hit, they've done all of the um, minimum number of repairs and everything like that. They just want to be done. They want to go home. No one's cutting corners on their job. Right. But it's not impossible that they miss something or they see something and they say, you know, it's probably fine, right? right. Um, especially if the boss is breathing down their neck. So there's that. And then, you know, aside from that, there's the question of the rail. Um, track inspectors uh, and, and track workers have been slashed to the bone too. So maybe there was something wrong with the rail. Maybe um, something had developed in it uh, since the last time it was inspected. Um, so if there were more track workers, more track inspectors, maybe something would have been caught there um, and something would have been fixed before that happened. But also talking about how it was built with all this weight on the rear. So that's part of the problem with precision scheduled railroading. Before precision scheduled railroading, you know, you you waited until you got enough cars that we're going to a certain location that you could, and enough of the right kind of cars and everything like that, that you could build a train the right way. And then you would call a crew and the crew would come on duty and yeah. take that train, right? So it was based on the, the, the reality of what's in the yard, what's coming, things like that. With precision scheduled railroading, now everything is, there are jobs that um, have, you know, are set to run every day and um, uh, at, you know, generally the same time and everything like that. And so you, the yard masters, the people who are in charge of building these trains, making the plans for how these trains are assembled, are under a huge amount of pressure because one of the metrics that the, the railroads use to indicate to their shareholders that they're doing a good job is something called dwell time basically how long a car is yeah how long a car is sitting somewhere and not moving and Mm -hmm. the more dwell time the worse it looks for the shareholders so the yard masters are under a huge amount of pressure to do quick turnaround on these cars to you know it comes in it goes out the same day right um and that means you know if you have this weird hodgepodge of cars and they all have to go on this one train um, and they have to be blocked by destination, you know, um, so all the cars going to a certain place are all together. um, But then there's different weights between those different blocks. You might not be able to assemble a train that is going to be the easiest thing to run or the safest thing to run. Um, but you have to get those cars out, especially because there's more cars coming in and you're already out of space um, in, in the yard. So all of that sort of connects to this this mm-hmm. situation where maybe a, if if car inspectors, if uh, car inspectors were properly staffed, were given enough time to inspect cars, had the manpower to seriously look at everything, maybe this defect would have been caught and this derailed made derailment may have been avoided. Maybe if we weren't, uh, if there wasn't this pressure around moving cars as quickly as possible, then 
this train would have been smaller or it would have been built better um, and the derailment wouldn't have been nearly as bad wouldn't have been nearly as disastrous yeah, so that makes it sense. all it all connects in mm -hmm. i was reading about the staffing on these trains and i know that this is something that that you've been concerned about in the past and i think the there were three people on this train, right? Um, and that uh, it brings up a lot of questions and corollaries for me. The first is, you know, a lot of my research in the last couple of years, or reporting the past couple of years, has been on nursing home staffing. And the situation was somewhat reminiscent of that, at least in my mind, where you have these private equity or hedge fund, well, just generally Wall Street firms that are trying to cut staffing at, you know, in every way that they possibly can. And then flying blind, right? And just being like, well, when there's a problem, there's going to be a problem and we'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and for nursing homes, it was COVID, right? Like that's where it, the the rubber hit the road for, mm -hmm. for that industry. Um, like what is the staffing like? I think if people heard this, right? Like there are three people on this massive train, they'd be stunned. They're like, how is that possible? Like what is a... Is that like a low level of people? Is that a low number of people? Like what is a what is like a good number of people here? And then how do you think like why do you think that the staffing issue is is going on? Yeah, so so three people is actually a third more than you normally get. <laughs> right. Because right. right. one of them was like a trainee or something, right? Yeah. Right. So um <laughs> so nor the the minimum required crew in in most cases although now there are um some yard jobs and um some local jobs that don't go out onto the main line and maybe there's situations there's there's other situations that I'm not aware of where there are there is a single employee um running the train using essentially remote control so basically doing the the engineer's job and the conductor's job um on these big road trains though it's still um and this has been the goal of the the companies for the longest time has been to to reduce it to a single uh person and there was actually a a trial or a brief attempt at a trial run of of doing this by union pacific um earlier this year um but so it's it's normally a conductor and an engineer um both at the head of the train, so in the in the engines, um, unless for some reason the the conductor's on the ground doing work or um, on the rear of the train um, riding the shove um, during a reverse movement. So this train was um, it's it was pretty big, nine over nine thousand feet long, eighteen thousand tons. So that's 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 pretty big. It's not obscenely big though which is um i think an indication of how obscenely big meaning uh in comparison to some of the other some of the trains that we see nowadays it's humongous compared to you know even 10 years ago um but the reason there were three people on this train is because of the uh there was there was a trainee and there's because the 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 railroads have have slashed and slashed um staffing to the bare minimum uh in order to to prop up profits you know it used to be, for for most of the 20 20th century it was uh like it was five crew members on a train and that was back when there was still the caboose and there was manually um uh operated brakes and things like that um uh, and so you had five people on a train um but between technological advances and other things there have they've they've weaponized those and used those as justification to reduce the crew down to down to just two people so um so yeah there were three people on this train and um and they were lucky they they had three um, normally you, you just get two, but the, the reason there's this trainee is because the railroads have cut to the point where now service is suffering to, uh, to a massive degree 
to the point where where federal regulators can't let it slide anymore. And so last um, spring, there were a bunch of hearings about, you know, why is basically the economy being threatened by the failure of the railroads to deliver things? And, and everybody agreed that the problem was um, that there weren't enough train crews um, to, to run all the trains that are needed. So, so they're trying to solve this. They're trying to solve the problem that they've created of, of cutting jobs and forcing experienced employees out by mass hiring um, new people and throwing them in um, with basically, you know, minimum amounts of training. Mm. Well, what, um, what is it like? Can you just tell me, like, what is it like? How does having more people on on board help? Right. Like in terms yeah. of safety, in terms of because uh, I think like what they would argue is like, well, you only need one person or two people yeah. because everything's automated. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and we're monitoring from our central location or whatever that they would say. Right. But like, well, like in reality, from your experience, like how, how does you know, how does having more staff on the train improve safety? Well, so part of the problem here is that the um, and some people will say this is because most of the, you know, high up management of of the railroads um, didn't come from the craft uh, uh, that the they they've never worked on the ground as conductors or, or engineers, um, you know, T&E. Um, train and engine service. And so they don't know how to railroad. Um, I think it's, it's bigger than that. It's a bigger problem than that. I think there's, there's plenty of sort of management that, that has come from the craft and is still, you know, sold on the idea of, of slashing, um, because their, their priority is, is keeping the shareholders happy. Um, but part of the problem is that from their perspective, if the train is not doing work at an industry, right? If it's not delivering cars or if it's not switching out cars or if it's not doing um, a reverse movement um, or any of the things where the conductor has to be out of the cab, um, out of the engine uh, to be on the ground and, and you know, uh, making connections between cars and, and all that other stuff, they see the... Con- it's wasted time. The conductor from their perspective is just sitting in the engine, you know, doing nothing as the train is moving from point A to point B and the engineer is doing all the work of actually running the train. Um, So that's, that's not true. (laughs) Um, The modern day conductor is um, really uh, a couple of different crafts rolled into one. It's uh, the conductor has absorbed what what the brakeman used to do in terms of actually being on the ground and, and making hitches and making air hoses and um, knocking off handbrakes or tying handbrakes, securing cars, things like that. Um, traditionally, the conductor's main job was uh, radio communication or, you know, before the days of radio, um, uh, um, other kinds of communication with dispatchers, with managers, with uh, other trains uh, and other workers that might be out, you know, doing work aside from running trains, whether that's maintenance work or inspection or things like that. Uh, The conductor is also in charge of all the paperwork in the train uh, that includes important information such as how the weight is distributed in the train, um, like we've seen with this uh, derailment or what hazardous materials are contained within the train, which cars, what location are they, any kind of uh, clearance issues. So cars that are tall or wide that you may not be able to fit under certain bridges or go in certain territories with or weight restrictions, things like that. So the conductor is constantly updating that paperwork, um, making sure that the engineer is updated with all that paperwork. Um, communicating with dispatchers, other trains, uh, things like that over the radio, um, and helping the engineer look for signals, um, which are basically, you can think of them like the traffic lights of, of the railroad, except, um, you know, you run a red light on with your car, you, you might get a ticket. Um, if you run a red light with your train, 
it's a minimum of 30 days decertification and uh, <laughs> and no work. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, of a bigger deal. Um, and you're making sure that the engineers uh, awake, uh, that both of you are understand what you're doing and how you're going to do it. Um, you're bouncing ideas off of each other. You're discussing to make sure that um, you're not taking any kind of dumb shortcuts, that you haven't missed anything, mm -hmm. because these shifts are, you know, 12 hours. 12 hours is technically the maximum, but um, there's all kinds of things that can happen where you can be stranded on a train for, you know, 15 hours waiting for someone to come and pick you up. Um, so making sure that everyone's alert and aware. So having a conductor handling all that is still a lot, even for just the conductor. Right. And, and, um, and the engineer is worried about now, um, managing this 18,000 ton train, which is, um, uh, and all the different uh, terrain that you're going um, up and down over and how the different forces are working. So um, breaking, how he's breaking, um, how he's applying power, all this other stuff. So right now, two people on a train is like, in some cases, it's running at the ragged edge, depending on how complex the job is, where everybody's on full capacity. And so um, having more people can be as simple as, um, and of course with trainees qualifiers, um, you can't actually have them, um, you know, you're not supposed to let them out of your, out of your site basically. So right. you can't really use them like a third person on the train, but in situations where you do have a third person or someone from another crew is helping you uh, make a move or something like that, it can be a matter of dividing up the workload and making sure that, um, you know, people are, are able to focus on, on what they need to focus on. So, um, but I, again, so their, their whole goal is to eventually get rid of the road conductor and the way that, um, Union Pacific was trying to do it was, um, it was sneaky. It was changing the road, uh, changing the conductor from being based on, um, a single train basically being attached to a single engineer and a single train for, for their shift um, to basically being based on the ground and covering a certain area. So working with any trains that would come through that area and need help anywhere within that area, um, which was um, a hugely bad idea for uh, a, a million different reasons, um, aside from being an attack on jobs. What's like something like I, I know that there's been a lot of criticism, I think, um, from the laughter from people who are in the, you know, who are working in the industry of the, of uh, the government in terms of this. Right. Like not just because of mm -hmm. what happened you know, at the end of last year, but also because it seems like there's a lot of regulation and a lot of stuff that could happen in terms of slowing down some of these trains, slowing down the pace. Um, making sure that the, that the industry can't just overlook a bunch of stuff, right? Like, what do you think the government can do to avoid this from happening again? Because I imagine, you know, that over the next few weeks, as some of the environmental effects of this derailment start to come to light, even more so than that they have, that this will be quite big news, right? That um, uh, and that there will be. A moment in which I think now whether they listen or not is yeah. you know not really <laughs> up to anyone, but where where a vision or something like that of how the government can help can be expressed. Like, well, what what do you think the government can do to like avoid this from happening? Again? So the the federal government has um, even state governments to a certain extent have an, a, a huge amount of power um, in regulations um, in. Uh, in the industry. So for example, it, where I work, um, it's actually illegal in the state um, to have remote control associated with trains at all, right? So we don't have any remote control jobs, which is um, huge. Uh, um, but there's been a, a lot of things that um, workers have been pushing for and and beyond workers community uh, communities community activists have been pushing for things like 
um, regulations about the uh, length and the weight and the size of trains, right? Um, uh, it's been, it gets raised in a, in a lot of different contexts from, you know, places where crossings are blocked for hours, for miles in either direction because there are trains parked because the crew has run out of time to to do their work or because there's, you know, uh, traffic ahead of them or something like that mm. to, you know, concerns like this of um, these are monstrous trains that are in a lot of cases, they're, they're going through towns in on routes that were, you know, built, a hundred years ago, um, you know, even longer than that, where, yeah, okay, maybe it was, you know, a, a single engine and like seven or eight cars back in the 1890s, like going through this town. <laughs> and now you have something massive like this. Um, there could be regulations on that front, regulating the size, the weight of the trains. There could be improved regulations around hazardous materials. There's um, we've covered this in, and there's been some good coverage of this in terms of how this train was not actually classified as a high risk flammable train, um, because so crazy, right? Because the definition of what's considered, you know, flammable, um, was, was restricted, um, as a result of, um, intense lobbying from the railroad companies. Um, so there could be tightened regulations about um, hazmat and how we handle hazmat, um, how we secure hazmat, where hazmat is allowed to uh, go, you know, uh, on what tracks and things like that. Um, there yeah, could I be... To, like, hi hold on. I wanted to highlight that for a second because I, I was reading about that too, which was that, you know, the reason why that this train would, you know, maybe even I think prior to the Trump administration would have been classified as carrying hazardous materials and then some lobbying efforts right from the from the companies into the trump administration basically like reduce that just to like some like crude oil or something like that is that right right so that like the definition of what is flammable is actually not like if you put a match to it will it explode and potentially blow up or destroy a town like the definition is like <laughs> well what do the lobbyists and the politicians agree is flammable right like it, that, i mean it's just like sort of stunning to me to read that yeah, so there's kind of there's two things that are being talked about in terms of um, lobbying by the rail companies that have either rolled things back or or prevented um, improvements. So one is on the question of um, a better braking system, right. um, uh, electronic uh, um, controlled uh, pneumatic brakes, um, which the companies have lobbied against ferociously, even though in their own studies, it's been proven to be a much safer and a much more effective way of um, uh, breaking trains. Um, uh, they have lobbied against it, basically arguing that it would cost them a huge amount of money to outfit um, the rolling stock, the, the cars and the um, uh, with this system. Uh, and it wouldn't actually improve safety all that much, which is, a hundred percent um garbage that's that's not true um uh and there's been plenty of studies about this but but yeah so there's there's also this um uh discussion about um hazardous materials because the the electronic braking system um discussion came up around specifically it should be um uh first and foremost implemented on hazardous materials you know cars that are carrying um hazardous materials um so there was um under the Obama administration there was um a rule um that was going to uh require better brakes on um some of these trains but then it uh they the administration uh, basically restricted, um, despite what um, a lot of people were saying, basically restricted what they considered hazardous uh, um, uh, materials to, you know, like you were talking about, like crude oil and a couple other specific right. things. So, so this um, um, 
what is it, vinyl chloride that is the specific thing that has um, exploded and burned in um, East Palestine is not on on that list, right? And that was a result of the Obama administration um, caving to uh, company lobbying, essentially. Um, and so, uh, and then there's the further thing about uh, Trump, the Trump administration repealing um, uh, the the rule about the improved braking. I see. So the Dems weren't that much better. Than well, this is this is part of the problem, yeah. right? I mean. <laughs> you go back and you look at the um obama administration and there's there's um the big you know if the obama administration is going to claim that they had you know uh, a positive effect it would be through the the rail safety improvement act which um came out in 2008 which limits the hours that we can work to 12 hours um train crew to 12 mm -hmm. hours instead of um it was uh it was like 16 before that right so um but then of course there's all this other stuff that the, the part of the problem is this industry is so like arcane right it's so confusing and and um not transparent at all to people on the outside but then even for us people on the inside even people who are engaged in our unions and try to follow what's going on in politics so much of this stuff so much of this lobbying and, and backroom dealing goes under the rug and we never even hear about it, mm -hmm. you know, and it takes things like, you know, this to happen. And then all of a sudden we have people looking back and saying, hold on, you know, I remember when there was the talk about, you know, expanding hazardous material definitions and, and improving the braking systems and that got scuttled, right? Uh, that wasn't even anywhere on anyone's mind yeah. uh, until, you know, until this happened. So, and then of course, obviously with the, the recent contract, um, you know, Biden claiming he's the most pro-labor president in history and then, you know, denying us our most fundamental uh, right in terms yeah. of, and because I think this is part of the thing is, you you were talking about it earlier the contract battle was reduced in the corporate media to this question of of sick days and the the context that we were talking about aside from all the other problems in the contract that that got glossed over because of that um it was also we were trying to raise the alarm about everything all of the context of everything that's going on in the in in the railroads that nobody knows about unless they're following the industry right. and yeah. most people aren't even most labor circles you know it was like a crash course of totally. <laughs> of oh my god railroads still exist and oh my god for me definitely yeah <laughs> like what do they do right so something that happened shortly after the contract was forced through was in December. Um, it was December 6th, I think. Um, the two biggest railroad unions, which um, for the most part represent um, conductors and engineers, train crew, um, we organized a day of action. Um, there was a, a protest in D.C., um, but then there were local protests organized, um, mm -hmm. including in my area. And we were trying to take obviously people talked about the contract right and i whether i agree or not that you know it was a done deal at that point and there was nothing we can do the the messaging from from our unions was that um we're trying to take this uh, attention that is now suddenly on our industry and we're going to try and raise um, awareness about some key issues. So immediately we were talking about at, at, at those rallies, we were talking about the fact that there were hearings um, scheduled literally later that week um, on uh, or later that month on the two person train crew rule. Um, right. And we were one of the other things that we were trying to, to, to push in the in those uh, rallies was talking about safety on the railroads. Right. And now you fast forward just, you know, uh, 
two months and we have this, right? This is what we were trying to warn about. And there's, there's a video that's going around of uh, a railroad worker who was in DC and was, uh, you know, essentially predicted that this, this was uh, Mm -hmm. going to happen. Something like this was going to happen. Um, So. Nick, I was wondering if, um, just in the last couple of minutes we have here, you could say briefly if there are other places that do this any better. Like I know you were recently mm-hmm. in England, um, I think to do some socialist organizing stuff. Um, but I'm curious, like in conversations with railroad workers or unions in other parts of the world, like are there better, safer trains or better, safer ways of managing um, workers and, and uh, working positions? It's a it's a good question because um, and it's not necessarily one that I, I feel like I'm super um, well equipped to answer because part of the problem is um, if we're talking about sort of the passenger side of things and I think this is one interesting thing that's that there's been a whole lot of attention being paid to the freight side of things now mm-hmm. um, between the contract and between um, now this accident. Uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to to the problems in the freight industry and that needs to also carry over into the passenger hmm. side of things because there are massive problems um both with local stuff um but then also you know what passes for uh national rail service in the US with with Amtrak um seriously yeah. so it's it's really easy and there's a lot of comparisons made by people sort of outside of the industry where they look at you know um things like uh some of the high speed rail systems in um Europe or or China or things like that and they point towards you know look at how this could um you know how much better our passenger rail service could be um in, in the US and that's absolutely you know 100% true but the U.S. is kind of in a in a unique position where, um, and uh, I'm going a little bit out on a limb here because I haven't done a ton of research. But uh, from what I know, so when I was in London, I took the opportunity to talk with um, some of my comrades who are in uh, the the railroad unions over there, um, mm-hmm. ASLEF and um, the RMT, and. Uh, they're mostly passenger service. There's very little freight railroading in in Britain. Um, there's much more. Much more of it is trucking. Yeah. Um, the, the U.S. is kind of unique in terms of we move so much freight and so far over uh, the rails um, that I'm not sure that there's there's a good sort of comparison to other countries. Um, freight rail systems. I'd have mm. to. I'd have to do a lot of research that I haven't done yet. But I think um, obviously there's a lot of things that um, are really obvious. Um, one of the things, and RWU, um, we've officially launched our campaign um, calling for public ownership of of the railroads. Um, that's a huge thing, and it's not even necessarily a. a panacea it's not something that would automatically fix all the problems in in britain uh and and in a lot of other places railroads are are sort of nationalized but in reality it's um massive it's public money going to um private contractors Mm -hmm. to run the national rail service and there's an increased uh, drive for further privatization and so the battle there is to fight for you know, renationalization. Um, and so, but I think that's, that's one, there's, there's any number of things, right. Whether we're looking at how do we increase, um, uh, staffing on the railroads? Um, how do we increase, um, people actually staying long enough to become experienced? So we don't have this massive skill gap of, um, this older generation who is very experienced and is aging out of the industry. And then people like me who are very young and very, very new, you know, we're, we're talking about issues about pay issues about um, time off scheduling 
uh, all those things that were raised in the contract. But then you can broaden it out. And like we were talking about earlier, starting to look at re- uh, regulations about the size of trains and mm-hmm. how trains are run and how many people, um, minimum staffing requirements, things like that. Um, uh, uh, increased regulation around overtime, um, excessive overtime and things like that um, to like we're talking about in Railroad Workers United about the need for for public ownership to basically say this industry is so important to everybody's lives that it cannot decision making of how to run this industry cannot be in the hands of a tiny handful of people whose sole goal is to maximize profit because yeah. they're not making decisions based on how can we most safely and efficiently and environmentally friendly, you know, uh, move freight there. How can we move freight or make it look like we're moving freight in some cases as quickly as possible in order to get more investors to, to mm-hmm. buy stocks, right? Yeah. Essentially. Right. So they it's do. such a key industry yeah. that, that um, the the broader public needs to be the ones who um, who have the decision making power and how it runs. If I if I can just say part of the battle now is there was a lot of attention around the contract battle, and we we don't want that to go, to go away because the issues aren't going away, and right. we're coming up on in. Uh, starting the whole contract fight all over again within a couple of years. And beyond that, there's these important questions about how do we get um, pro-worker, pro-safety regulation in the federal government if both parties are so beholden to corporate interests. There's all this stuff that we're fighting on between now and then. Um, And so part of it is... um, making sure that we're continuing to get the information out there and um this point you know i've i've heard it from teachers um uh and and nurses who i've been on picket lines with and things like that you know the teachers say our our working conditions are your students learning conditions right nurses right. say are uh, and healthcare workers our working conditions are your care conditions you get better care Railroad workers, our working conditions are whether or not your town is going to be on the map um, when a hazardous train rolls through it um, with people on, you know, who knows how much sleep um, and cut to the bone. And so, frankly, we're talking about this derailment, but not enough people are. It's amazing how little it's making national headlines. Yeah. especially the scale of the damage the photographs and the videos are are truly horrific and if that stuff was you know on the head headlines and the front pages of the big newspapers in the u.s there would be a very different conversation um yeah thanks for thank you for coming on it's very uh i don't know i learned a ton it's very informative yeah thank you um, nick you know the the way in which everything I don't want to make it, you know, like a train metaphor, obviously, but <laughs> the way in which like one thing, one little cost cutting totally, leads to another yeah. cost cutting leads to another cost cutting. And obviously everything is linked. Right. And then when you cut everything, right, like what happens is just, you know, um, I mean, it's a grim picture. Right. And um, I think uh, hopefully for our listeners, at least it will give a sense of why you know, the actions of last year were seen as necessary by some of the people who, who work there. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our show. We do this every week. Uh, as always, you can support us at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. If you'd like to contact us on Twitter, we're at, at ttsgpod. Um, or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to join our Discord server, that's one way that, you know, we this one perk that we give to our benefactors. Is that what we should call them? <laughs> Helpers? It sounds so old-fashioned. It's amazing. Patrons? 
people we appreciate very much. <laughs> um, so we do stuff on there from time to time. Like we're reading Himawari House, which is like a graphic novel. Um, and but we'll be having a TTSG subscriber movie night on Friday, March 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Discord users will be voting on a movie to watch between now and next Monday. We're going to try and use some of Discord's technology to all be able to watch the movie together. What are some of the movies that are in the contention right now? I think people have been shy about it and haven't been publicly posting, so they're sending them to me. Oh, really? <laughs> but I'm excited. This will be nice. We have a lot of really um, like film nerdy people in the cords, so I'm excited. Oh, that is true. Um, but yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode and Tammy until next week. I'll see you. See you.